Next, on Book TV's Afterwards, former Virginia Democratic Governor Terry McAuliffe recounts events that led up to the tragedy in Charlottesville after the Unite the Right rally in 2017. He's interviewed by Slate editor Dahlia Lithwick. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. We're here talking to former governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, about his new book, Beyond Charlottesville, Taking a Stand Against White Nationalism. And we are uh, marked, uh, bracketed by, we're almost at the two-year anniversary of the August 11th, August 12th uh, alt-right marches in Charlottesville that he commemorates. We're also just a few days out from another set of really horrifying uh, murder sprees in America. It's a, a sobering thing to think that we keep thinking we hit rock bottom. I suspect we thought that two years ago, and, and we're bottoming out again. So, so Governor, congratulations on the book, and thanks for making time to talk about it. Well, thank you, Dahlia. It's great to have you be here today. I, I wonder if we could start, Governor, with the question that hovers a little bit over uh, your first couple of chapters in the book, and then it hovers over so much of the debate uh, we're having right now in America, and it's this question of place. Uh, I think it's not an accident that you start the book saying that when you wanted to run uh, for office in Virginia, people said to you, oh, you're from New York, you're from Florida, you're, f yep. you're not from here. I lived in Charlottesville for 17 years. I heard you're not from here a lot. Yep. But I think it's got a funny echo, Governor, in the things that are said when people protest immigrants. You're not from here. And so I, I, you're clearly anxious about establishing that, look, I'm from here. I've lived here most of my life. Right. I live and work here. Why are we having this conversation at all? <clears throat> and, and as my wife is quoting the book, you know, I've been going to the same Safeway now for 25 years. But, you know, uh, Virginia was a southern state. Uh, they were very proud of their heritage. Uh, I was the first New Yorker uh, to become the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. But, you know, I will tell you this, Virginia has evolved. Northern Virginia has really changed uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia. I think now a majority now actually were not born in Virginia who actually live in the Commonwealth of Virginia today. But, you know, it's a great state, a state of about 8.5 million people. But I th thought it was important that we lay out the context uh, of the history of Virginia and the th challenges that I faced, you know, being a New Yorker running for office. But then because a lot of the issues, we had had a horrible racist past. We were the capital of the Confederacy. Uh, it was different for me. Uh, I grew up in upstate New York. A lot of the things that I uncovered, I had never thought of. I talked early in the book, one of my first events out in Harrisonburg, Virginia, I was at an event and the body man who was with me, my aide, a tall, young African-American man was at the bar waiting for me to finish. And a woman came up and said, you know, you need to be careful, young man. And he said, why? And she said, well, there's a KKK rally going on. And I'll be honest with you, Dally, I didn't even know the KKK, honestly, was still having rallies. And, you know, an event after that, uh, I was out campaigning with my wife, and she went up to a man and said, I'd love you to vote for my husband, gave uh, the guy a brochure. He threw it on the ground, said, I'd never vote for your husband. He's an end lover. And those were just, you know, listen, uh, you can't let a few define everybody. As I say, those horrible thousand neo-Nazis and white supremacists who came to Virginia that weekend, we're still a nation of 335 million people. But we do have a small subset who are haters. And Donald Trump uh, has driven those haters out from underneath their rocks.
And it's so interesting because I think one of the things we're seeing even in the wake of these new El Paso shootings is this theory of replacement, right? That uh, white, alt-white, you know, white supremacist, ethno-nationalist, whatever you want to call them, the anxiety for them is that they're being replaced. And the crazy paradox is they're not from Virginia. I mean, you sort of say throughout the book, these people are flying in from Ohio yeah. and California to come to say, this yeah. is our place. It's so yeah. bizarre. <laughs> and I think layered over that saying to and an African-American woman, you have a, a moment in the park where you say these alt-white, alt-right protesters are yelling at an African-American woman that they want to put her on the boat. They're yeah. not from here. Yeah. So I think it's this big, big national anxiety where we go to places that aren't even our places and then we claim that there are places and other people are pushing us out. Right. Well, and, and many of those, and they did come from 35 states. One of the reasons I decided to write the book, I couldn't do it as governor because I was busy, but the year after, you know, I was thinking of running for president, so I traveled to 25 states. Wherever I went, people asked me about Charlottesville. It was really seared into their minds. And many people had thought that these were Virginians, these were citizens of the great city of Charlottesville that were doing the protests. And I said, no, no, they came in. They came from 35 states. Uh, Charlottesville is a beautiful community. It's a liberal bastion. I mean, these folks are terrific, and it's just a great community. And the idea that they would be somehow, you know, involved with these folks is just nonsense. So that's one of the reasons. But you're right, this whole idea, and, and let's be clear, Dahlia, it, it is the president who fosters this, that when he ran for office, we are going to ban Muslims from coming into this country. The uh, he talked about the Mexicans being rapists and being criminals. I mean, this is his language trying to this white nationalism that we're going to go back to a country that is all white. And I remind you that unless you were Native American, you came to this country from somewhere else. The first three ships came to America in 1607, came to Jamestown, Virginia. I mean, my goodness. And we are this month celebrating the 400th anniversary uh, of the first legislative chamber in America, which was in Virginia, but also it was 400 years ago this month that the first slaves were brought to America and they were brought to Virginia. Um, so this is a long evolution. And my point, as you know, the president totally fumbled the ball, let America down on his speech, and I'm the one who had to go out that day and say to these folks, go home, get the heck out of Virginia, get out of our country. You know, they paraded around Dally like they were some big, you know, patriots, they weren't patriots. They were a bunch of cowards. They were carrying shields with swastikas on it and Adolf Hitler T-shirts. I mean, really? And then Friday night, as you know, was so frightening when hundreds came off the mountain by the University of Virginia. You could see them coming down, hundreds of them. It was dark. They were carrying their torches, and you could hear them as they came down screaming, Jews, you will not replace us and other chants from 1933-1934 Nazi Germany. I wonder if you can just answer one other framing question for me before we talk about yeah. the nuts and bolts of the book. And, and, and that yeah. is, I know you had several purposes in writing the book, but I think a big part of the, the purpose was, you know, healing, reconciliation, uh, you know, John Lewis uh, yeah. in the introduction talking about how we're all in the same fight here. But then by necessity, there ends up being finger pointing. It's not, you know, <laughs> that the, the Charlottesville police didn't do a good job. The courts didn't do a good job. Yeah. And I think some of the blowback, you know, that you're hearing in the last couple of days yeah. is like, don't 
lay blame, but you're trying, I think, to do two things that are in tension. One is bring us together, but also to reckon with what went wrong. And I wonder how you thought that through when you were writing. Sure. And the main purpose of the book is to deal with racism. As I say, as horrible as Charlottesville was, the one benefit that came out of it is it ripped the scab off of racism. I think for far too long in our country, people felt that we had dealt with racism. It didn't exist anymore. Uh, you know, it's a hard topic, Dahlia. White people don't like to sit around and talk about racism. They don't. They talk, sit around on these reconciliation commissions, which I say in the book are a waste of time. But it exists in this country today, and that's why John Lewis wrote the foreword uh, for me. He and I collaborated on the later part of the book, which says, how do we go forward? But the main thrust of what people should take from this book is that racism is alive and well. It's sad part of our history, but it exists today, and we need to do something to stop it. And I talk in the book at length about education. We can't have a system where there are two different education systems. If you're a young African-American child and you're going to a school that is inferior to other schools because the actual facility, it may rain and water would come through or the heating doesn't work or the cooling doesn't work or you don't have the same quality teacher, you are really putting that young African-American child at a disadvantage for the rest of their lives because they're not getting that same quality education. I talk a lot about education in the book and what we need to do in housing, in health care. But the other big point I make is in the criminal justice system. I spent a lot of time in the book on criminal justice. I reformed our criminal justice system. I reduced the juvenile detention population by two-thirds while I was governor. I did the most pardons of any governor of Virginia history. But, you know, I tell you, there was a... Uh, Lenny Singleton is a gentleman who I talk about in the book. This was a young man who... He was a drug addict. He had a problem. Uh, he committed five robberies. The total he stole in five robberies was $535. And nobody was injured. Now, Dahlia, you've read the book, so I won't ask you the question. But $535, nobody injured... He was given two life sentences plus 130 years. Really? And my point is we've got to reform our criminal justice system. So the main thrust of the book is racism is here. Quit talking. Start doing something. Lean in. You know, as governor, I restored more felon rights than any governor in American history. Republicans sued me. I got sued for contempt of court. We won. We put a billion dollars in education, the most ever, on our K-12 You know, I tried to lean in. I took the Confederate flag off the license plates. I did that to executive order. Elected officials need to lean in on these issues because racism is prevalent today in this country. And until we deal with those issues, uh, and that's one of the main purposes of this book, is to have that conversation. And then, of course, you get into, you know, the permitting process. And I think that's informative for readers. It's not about blame, but the permitting process had to be fixed in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, That permit should have been limited. That permit should never have been given for the park that it was in because Dahlia, the park was just too plain small for a thousand uh, protesters who were armed and probably a thousand or two thousand counter protesters. Physically, law enforcement that day, they did not have the ability to keep people safe. The city correctly filed a petition to move it to a much bigger park because the key to controlling a protest is to keep the two sides separated which was impossible at the first part. But unfortunately, as I write in the book, the ACLU sued, and the judge ruled in favor of the white supremacists and the neo-Nazis, and that rally was still held at a park that was just plain untenable. I support the First Amendment. 
And as you know, many of uh, the board members of the ACLU, Jewish members, quit in protest saying, you know, I'm for the First Amendment, but I'm not for protecting neo-Nazis uh, to come in and who, you know, I mean, listen, Dahlia, that day they were screaming, we're going to burn you and we're going to burn that synagogue like we did in Auschwitz. Every other word was the F and N word. Every woman was called the F and C word. And uh, what they were saying about members of the Jewish faith, I mean, how did we get to a place in America? That's the point of the book. How did we get here in America? And how do we move America forward? I, I, I'd love to have you spend a minute. You know, I'm sitting here in New York. You're in D.C. Uh, you and I both know Charlottesville very well. Yeah. Can you just describe for people who haven't been there how truly tiny those parks are, how small that park is, the town itself is just, you know, it's a few miles, uh, yeah. you know, wide. There's one synagogue. There's a couple of uh, African-American churches. That's right. This is not a town that people recognize if they live in big cities. Right. It's a small Mayberry RFD. I love it. it, it it's got a beautiful uh, main market street, main street, that with a lot of great restaurants. But, you know, it's right where the University of Virginia uh is it's based there it's a college town the people are spectacular fun loving you know very liberal it's a very liberal city open and welcoming to everybody no matter your background or whom you love or who you pray to and that's why it was really so shattering uh for the city of charlottesville to have to go through this but as i say the, the park we're talking about is a small little park and their inability for anyone to keep control of it was very hard that day. But as I say, we knew Friday night it was going to be bad when the torches came out. They never should have been allowed on the University of Virginia campus. You're not allowed to bring lighted uh, torches on a campus and onto the you know, grounds and lawn of the University of Virginia. But, you know, they didn't come. I make the point in the book. You know, they filed the permit after the city had voted to take down the Robert E. Lee statue. But I make the point that they weren't coming. Half these people didn't even know who Robert E. Lee was. This was an opportunity. This was going to be the time we could come. We can spew our hatred. This was going to be the time we can all come together and sort of what Trump had been talking about, white nationalism and neo-Nazis. This was our time that we could all come together. And I tried to do the best I could uh, to keep things a lid on it. Uh, I continuously was on radio and TV trying to tell folks not to come in counter-protests, we'd like to keep it as just let these folks walk down the street and get out of town, um, you know, but, you know, obviously people all wanted to come out because I think they were horrified of what they were hearing from these people going on that day. The folks in the city of Charlottesville were spectacular, and, and it's sad. It's a sad for Charlottesville, it's sad for Virginia, but much beyond that, Dahlia, this was a sad day for America. And I can remember when I finally went out and gave my speech, uh, I got phone calls and texts from folks all over the globe because what's going on in America? And then when Trump came out and said, you know, they were good people on both sides, I mean, that was the lowest point of his presidency. And I talked to him that day. I had a phone conversation, told him what was going on and in you, you thought you had, you thought you'd persuaded him to say the right thing, right? You hung up the phone yeah. thinking he understood that there were no good people on the Nazi side. Well, foolish me. I, I thought that the President of the United States, and I talked about, you know, Bill Clinton had issues, as you know, in Oklahoma City when he went down and healed the nation. Barack Obama had Charleston, South Carolina when he went down and healed the nation. Uh, George Bush at 9-11 went up there with the bullhorn. You know, when these types of major incidents happen in our country, 
They're looking for the president. They're looking for the president to be the moral leader, to be the uniter, to bring us back together again. And I felt that the president understood what was in front of him. And it's interesting. I, t I tell this in the book that when I hung up from the phone, I felt that he was going to go out and do the right thing. I'd said, you know, let him, he, Mr. President, you do your press conference first. I was going to wait, of course, for the president. And I felt that, you know, he was going to do the right thing. And then, Dahlia, it got delayed half an hour, hour, hour and a half, two hours. And I'm thinking, he's got all the information. The world is watching. Why is he not doing the press conference? And, and you know what happened. The folks inside the White House got to him and said, no, Mr. President, no. You are not going to attack neo-Nazis. And, in fact, you're not even going to use the word neo-Nazi. You're not going to attack white supremacists, and you're not even going to use the white supremacists, and you're going to come out and say there were good people on both sides. Well, you know, there weren't good people on the neo-Nazi side. There weren't good people on the white supremacist side. There were very good people on the protester, the counter-protester side. They were all out there. I mean, you had ministers, and you just had concerned citizens who were there to protest against hatred. That, that is the reason they were there, peacefully protesting against hatred. ask you because in the you know weeks leading up and and you mentioned in this in the book that this was not a one off you know people think that you know the August 11th events on the UVA campus and August 12th uh, were the totality of that summer, but you know we had three other <laughs> Nazi marches. We had the Proud Boys, the KKK, uh, you know, showed up. And over the summer, Governor, there was a, a, a real erosion of trust in the police in the community. And I think that a lot of folks felt, you know, some version of. And, and you, you mentioned in the book it was exacerbated when you know after the KKK march in July. The crowd was pepper sprayed. You know, it was, seemed yep. like an overreaction. They decided to lean back. This is a, a, a sort of dance between the public and their local police right. about trust in the cops. And I, I guess I want to say to you, it's such a challenging thing that you're trying to do in the book, which is both foster trust in the police, in the state police, in the courts. You want people to believe that these institutions are going to keep them safe, but they really failed on that day. And and I know you're trying to thread the needle in the book, and, and you are saying, look, you know, the local cops just didn't know what they were in for. But I do think that what I remember that whole summer was people in town saying, they're not going to protect us. And I think two years later, it's one of the reasons the community is still so royal. They really lost faith in their city government, in their police, uh, in the state. What, yeah. what do you say to this sort of tension of how do we account for the fact that they really made horrifying errors that summer and also that folks need to sort of find trust in government again? Well, and I, and I talk about all the different issues leading up to what needed to be done. You know, it, it, it's not finger pointing or whatever. It's just, you know, when the permit was granted, there were no restrictions put on the permit. The permit should have banned poles and sticks and, you know, masks and all types of things. You know, that's something that you, that you should do. And, and the city of Charlottesville admitted that they probably should have put some uh, constraints on the original permit that had come into the city. I mean, you've got to limit it. But I will say this overall. I mean, all the law enforcement, and it was sheriffs and city and state, and, you know, they're there. Their goal was to keep everybody safe, let these folks come in, Keep everybody safe. I mean, that is the goal. Nobody wants anybody to be injured. And get them in, get it done, and be finished with it as soon as you possibly can. 
um, it was at about 11.15 that day that, you know, I finally declared a state of emergency. The city should have done it under protocol. I'd seen enough, and I declared it. Uh, so the state police then moved in in front of the city of Charlottesville police, and they got on the bullhorn and said, you've got 11 minutes to clear the park. 11 minutes later, the park was cleared. The National Guard came in and secured the park. And at that point, about 11.50, which I remind you is 10 minutes before the protest was supposed to begin, the permit was a 12 to 5 protest. The park was clear. We'd had some skirmishes, some fistfights, but nobody seriously injured at this point. Uh, there had been zero property damage. I think everybody at that point, Dahlia, felt that, you know, things had gone better than people had hoped. Um, you know, outside of the horrible things they said and so forth, but under First Amendment, you have the right to say these things. And then it was about an hour later that, as you know, that, that James Fields, you know, weaponized his car, and then he ran down that street in Charlottesville and killed 32-year-old Heather Heyer and injured 35 individuals. And then it was about an hour or two hours after that that, that the state police helicopter, who was doing surveillance in the air, had a massive mechanical failure and crash, killing uh, two state troopers, the pilot who had flown me as governor and the co-pilot, who was a brand new co-pilot, who had left me, my security detail to join that. So, you know, it was a heartbreaking day, but I would say uh, these folks, I mean, they were there. The intent is to keep everybody safe. That's what everybody wants. I do have some issues ahead of time in the planning and steps that should have been taken. We should, you know, barricades should have been put up a lot around a lot of the streets, but the city of Charlottesville police had an agreement with the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists that they would enter into one road into the park. Right. Well, guess what? They didn't honor that commitment. I don't know why you would ever believe the word of a neo-Nazi, but, you know, but I mean, second guessing is, and, and the point of the book is not to do that. It's to lay out factually, from my perspective, from the governor where I was sitting, the meetings and so forth, uh, of what actually went on. But the purpose and goal is, and I did right after uh, did Executive Order 67 and 68 to, to redo the permitting process because, you know, in a situation like this, the city's in control. I was in a support role of the state, but we need a better mechanism of unified command so that everybody is at that table, not just one, not just the city police. Everybody is sitting there together early on in order to make these, these situations. And that is, you know, what is now in Virginia as, as we go forward. And I changed the permitting process. I mean, they filed right after uh, to do another event uh, in Richmond uh, at the, uh, a the Robert E. Lee statue in Richmond, which is one of the few that the state actually controls. So this actually came to the state. And I, I issued executive order. I canceled the permit for it because, once again, this permit for this roundabout in downtown Richmond the permit would have allowed Dahlia for 5,000 people. Mm -hmm. You could get 5,000 there if you stacked people 50 on top of each other. So, I mean, I had control of that one, so I stopped the permit. And, you know, I got a nasty letter from the ACLU. But you know what? My job is to keep people safe. And we redid that permitting process. And then, because they couldn't come to the state because I wouldn't give them a permit, because I wanted a review of how many people could be there safely. They, you know, they then said, we're going to have the rally in Richmond outside on the sidewalk. And you know what? Five, six people came. But one of the reasons was working with the city, the uh, Richmond City Police, the mayor, and the chief of police, they banned all sticks. They banned all poles. They limited the time. They banned all masks. See, masks are important. 
And one of the benefits that came out of Charlottesville was all of the counter-protesters had their cell phones and they were taking pictures of these neo-Nazis right. and white supremacists and they immediately put them on the next day up on social media. And many people lost their jobs. I talk about this young man who worked at a, in Berkeley, no, right. no less, at a hot dog stand. He got fired. A member of the United States Marine Corps uh, was thrown out of the Corps. So a lot of people paid a price. And I said that they, Virginia, will come out of this stronger. You will come out weaker. And that's exactly what happened. Their movement really became diminished. Many got indicted and have been charged. Their names were put up. They were, you know, held, uh, fired from their employment. And a year later, they tried to do, as you know, another big event in Washington. I don't know, 20 or 30 folks. And then I tell the story of Jason Kessler living at home in his father's <laughs> bedroom and the father kicking him out of the bedroom. I mean, how pathetic. But that's what happened to the movement. But, but, but that raises this question. You have this sort of chilling observation toward the end of the book where you say... You know, they sort of learn not to protest, and certainly we can sort of say, oh, you know, Chris Cantwell and Richard Spencer. I mean, they all seem to have uh, run aground and, and, in fact, as you point out, turned against each other. Yes. Um, but there's a way in which the Internet still allows uh, this movement to uh, burgeon and flourish. I, I, I mean, I think... I absolutely stipulate that you're right, and I think that Tim Hafey did that massive study on what went wrong and, you know, how the police uh, need to do things different. So we learned something, and I think we can stipulate that we learned a lot, which is why it was a one-off. But I think at the same time, we can't not reckon with the fact that El Paso just happened and, yeah. uh, you know, the, the Gilroy Garlic Festival before that and the Tree of Life before that. So, so... I feel like there are two things going on. We're talking about quelling and quashing, you know, some of the worst alt-right figures. But it definitely feels as though the movement has gone from protests and marches to something more insidious, no? Good point. And what's the common denominator there? I would go back to Donald Trump. Um, And listen, he is culpable. And I've said this consistently. He let America down that day in Charlottesville when he came out. And they were cheering him. As you read in the book, I've got the quotes, you know, from Spencer and Kessler and all that. I have David Duke in there. You know, we are continuing Donald Trump's mission to make this a white America. I mean, I have all the quotes. They're all documented in it. What's happened in the country is because of all the things you and I talked about earlier and the things that he has said about people, that people who... And I talk about how a lot of this started when President Obama got elected, and for many people, just the concept of a black president in the Oval Office, for many, was offensive. But they didn't really act on any of it. They may have done it on social media. And then you have a president comes in who spent, you know, a lot of time on the birth room and saying that the president was President Obama wasn't born in America, and then all the other he's tweeting, retweeting white supremacist, neo-Nazi activities while he's running for president. And then Trump comes in and the ban and all the things that he's done. I think it sent a signal, Dahlia, to people that, wow, if the president come out and say this stuff, I can too. And that emboldened them. That's why they felt comfortable coming to Charlottesville. If he can say it publicly, so can I. I make the point that people used to wear hoods. And they yeah. used to do this at night. They don't think they have to wear hoods anymore. And Charlottesville, they came out. This was their big coming out party. But they got hurt badly in Charlottesville. And they got pushed 
I agree with your point. Um, they're going to, you know, they weren't able to do another Charlottesville because they were so, you know, injured and wounded and charged and so forth that they weren't able to do it. But it has gone now underground on the web that this person from El Paso, this killer who wrote his manifesto and literally specifically talks about, you know, white supremacy, white identity, uh, directly quoting, you know, Donald Trump's tweets. So you're right. And the president, I, he failed us this week in his speech. I wished he had come out and said, opened his speech up and said, you know what? I'm sorry. My rhetoric has created divisions and hatred in this country, and I was wrong. It's time for us to come together. If President Trump had done that, he could have churned the entire corner. It would have been a seminal moment for our nation. But he doesn't have it in him. He gave this speech, which he read off a teleprompter, talked about all the hate speech out there. But Dell, you didn't even mention he's the he's the number one number one out there with the hate speech. And then I wish he'd said, I'm calling Senator Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader, to come back into session tomorrow. The House voted for a universal background check 160 days ago. Bring that bill up. I want it on the floor of the Senate. I want it voted this week. That's what he could have done. But it was just words. And it's sad. And he blamed mental illness, which right. is terrifying. And, he, uh, and, games. and difficult mean, for the mentally yeah. ill and games and the press. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I, you're grappling with the same thing I think we all grapple with, which is how much of this to, to lay at his feet and how much of this is a kind of pre-existing condition in this country that, you know, yeah. as you point out, yeah. uh, those Civil War statues <laughs> were not built in the Civil War. They were built in the 1920s. They right. were built to reinforce <laughs> Jim Crow. That's right. And, and I think there's, there's this uh, tricky thing that you're trying to do, which is both blame him and also understand that this predates him and will... That's survive right. him. I mean, this yeah. is in the bones of this country, and I think it's it's one of the things, again, that you and John Lewis do at the end of the book when you yeah. try to talk about fixes independent of Donald yeah. Trump. But I did want to ask you, because I think there's a moment in the book where Mike Signer, then the mayor of Charlottesville, comes out right out the chute in, what, February of 2017 and says, you know, Charlottesville is the capital of the resistance. You know, we're going to resist Trump. And you, you're sitting there in your office going, oh, God, no, don't say this. And so I think there is always this this paradox, right, of you want to call it out. You want to say this is what it is. And the travel ban was racist. And the ice raids are racist. And at the same time, by doing that, you make yourself yep. a target. And you've done that in this book. You, you open <laughs> with his failures. I wonder if there was a choice in your head when you were writing to try to play it without calling him out explicitly. Listen, I think you had to talk about the whole, how, how this got started, why did they choose Charlottesville, I think is very important. And listen, elected officials should call out Trump all the time. I do it all the time. But a city is not a center of resistance. It's not. Uh, you look at Charlottesville, it's a center of innovation, technology, UVA, and all that. But, you, you know, why, I mean, the point is, why did they choose Charlottesville? They could have gone anywhere in the South, or they could have gone anywhere. I think it's important that people understand why they chose Charlottesville. Uh, it was that, and then, of course, when they took the vote to take down the statues. You mentioned the statues. I think it's important to mention that, you know, the American Revolution started in Virginia. Patrick Henry, give me liberty, give me death speech, you know, to George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. It ended in Virginia at the Battle of Yorktown when Cornwallis uh, was defeated. That's a pretty big part of our history in Virginia. 
World War One, the war to end all wars, World War II. Uh, if you add all those up, you've got maybe a dozen monuments to all of those serious uh, events in our nation's history. The Civil War, there are 358 statues. And many of them, uh, as you may correctly mentioned, were during massive resistance during Jim Crow. They had nothing to do with the Civil War. And, you know, let's, let's call it what it is. Uh, these monuments are offensive to the African-American community. The Confederate flag is an offensive symbol to the African-American community. I, as governor, worked very hard to make Virginia open and welcoming. You know, I inherited a state, if you remember, we had passed horrible, the transvaginal bill, if you remember, got passed in Virginia before mm -hmm. I became governor. Uh, they passed trap laws to shut down all our women's clinics. Very much anti-gay legislation. My goal, and I ended all that, I fired the Board of Health and kept our women's clinics open and stopped all the anti-gay. The point is, your state has to be open and welcoming. That's how you're successful. Because when I came into office, I inherited a large deficit of $2.4 billion. We had been too reliant in Virginia on defense spending. And when sequestration came along, it had really hurt us badly. So my whole goal was to diversify the Virginia economy, build the new Virginia economy. And that's what we set out to do. Uh, I put a billion dollars into K-12 to make sure we're redoing our education system in Virginia. We recruited cyber. We became the number one state in America for cyber, data, unmanned systems. Four years later, I left the biggest surplus in the history of the state. Why? We're open. We're welcoming to everyone. And that's where Virginia is Say, Why did we just win Amazon? Everybody wanted it. We won it in Virginia. We're an open, welcoming, and we invest in our talent. We invest in our workforce. And that's why... Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon have all come to Virginia. And that's the point. You have to have your state open and welcoming. And offensive symbols should be taken down. We in Virginia don't allow local jurisdictions to determine what to do with their statues in their respective area. We ought to pass a bill immediately that local jurisdictions can determine what monuments are actually in your city or county. That should be your decision, not the state decision. Right. I mean, it's worth pointing out that two years later, those statues are still there. And, well, they uh, have no authority. Still... The state makes the decision. Yeah. So it's got to pass the Republican yeah. legislature, which that won't happen. That's why we got to win and the I legislature wonder... this year. <laughs> I, I wonder if maybe that's a good segue to the other part of why Charlottesville, you know, I mean, you described it and I agree. And like I said, I lived there and had my babies there and, you know, love it. But I think that the fact that it stands in the shadow of Monticello is itself complicated, right? And you mentioned Jefferson in the book, and yep. I think it's a town that's also still really complicated in its relationship to Jefferson, to slavery, to, you know, African-American women and how he treated them. And so I think that the same thing that you're describing, which is how do you feel sort of pride in the South, pride in the cradle of democracy, and also strive to be really candid about its failings. And that's the same problem we have with the statues, right? Is that right. there is a, a, a point of Southern pride, and there is an argument about how the South feels about itself and about the Civil War. How do you have that conversation? How do you thread that needle, Governor, without saying you're a bunch of racist haters, which is exactly why we get into this feedback loop we're in? Yeah. And, and I talk about this in the book at length. I mean, listen, Virginia's a great state of eight and a half million people. And those people that I confronted when I was running for governor, 
they're not symbolic of who Virginia is, but every state is going to have folks, they're going to have haters and racists and so forth. It's going to, but that's not who we are and that's not how it defines us. You're right. I mean, Virginia has such unique history. As I say, the first ships came to America, they came to Virginia. As I say, you know, this month, the first slaves, 400 years ago this month, came to Virginia. Uh, we have a very unique history in this country. Uh, I talk about Jefferson. I talk about Washington in the book. They were both slave owners. You know, they're a part of the history. And, but I do think when you talk about history, you should talk about all of it. And no one, nobody uh, should hide who we are, where we've come from, what our leaders were like, and the issues that they had. That's, you know, part of who we are. But, you know, you look at America today, we're such a great mosaic tile of, of immigrants. And I always say this with Trump, you know, uh, unless you were Native American, you know, you came here from somewhere else. And this idea that, uh, you know, this is our place. I mean, this, we're a country that got built. Uh, it's a great country, but we're as strong as the people who live here. And the immigrant community has only made us stronger. And that's why it's really sad of what Trump has done uh, to attack the folks, who, you know, who, who have moved here. My 1857, Bartholomew McCall came to, uh, came from Ireland, came over to the United States of America. Thank goodness he did. But you know, we have a very unique history, and Virginia is a great state. But, you know, we've got to deal with the issues of the past, and that's why, as I say, I, you know, on the issue of the Confederate flag, I banned it through executive order, and we ought to do something about these statues because you don't want anyone living in your community who feels offended. Uh, you want to be open and welcoming. You know, after the Supreme Court ruled, I was proud. I was the first governor to perform a gay marriage. That's who we are today. I restored more felon rights than any governor in American history, and I got sued and sued for contempt of court. You know, I, the big part of the book at the end is you got to start doing something. Quit talking. Lean in. Uh, and that's a big part of the end of the book, and we've got to move past, you know, I, reconciliation commissions. I talk about our waste of time, a bunch of white people sitting around feeling good about themselves. Do something. But racism exists. Charlottesville ripped the scab off. We now have a real opportunity going forward to deal with these issues and solve them. I wonder if you'd talk a minute about that, the gender piece of this, Governor, because I think it, it, it probably doesn't warrant saying, but I'll say it again, just overwhelmingly the white supremacists and Nazis that marched in Charlottesville were men, yeah. uh, you know, the perpetrators of all these, these hate crimes, these domestic hate crimes we're seeing, uh, the mass shootings are men. Uh, you don't talk about it a lot in the book, but I do know that you think about it, you talk so tenderly about having to tell your your daughter uh, about the the loss of uh, of uh, family friends. I, I wonder how gender fits into this conversation about you know we're talking about sort of southern pride. We're talking about uh, unreconciled ideas about the Civil War, and we're talking about racial hate and displacement. But somewhere in there, there's a real problem with male violence. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. No, that's a good point. And to be honest with you, it's something I hadn't thought about. Uh, you're right. It's right there in front of I mean, 90, I don't know the exact number, 90, 95% probably of the uh, neo-Nazi and white supremacists were men. Um, you know, this macho image of them, you know, marching down the streets, screaming. Uh, it sort of fits for where these people want to be. It's, it's a good point to make, but um, we, we've got to deal with it. And the question I have is, 
how did these men get in this position that they actually think like this? I mean, Dahlia, you're not born this way. Yeah. How did how did we get to this where you literally screaming that, you know, you want to burn these people alive like they did in Germany? I mean, how? And I make the point that we've got to do a better job in our education system. We've got to go back K to 6. Uh, early on, we've got to start teaching talking about these issues much earlier than we've done it before. And we don't do a good job in our education system talking about diversity, inclusion, openness, and so forth. We don't. We've got our textbooks. But, you know, there has to be a big part of how how do you fit in in, into the social work of our nation and our fabric? How is it that we deal with one another is, to me, is as important as, you know, your math class or your English class and so forth. And we don't. And I do think, and so I, you know, established several commissions uh, after Charlottesville, one, my diversity commission, and a lot of the recommendations for that are really on education. We've got to begin earlier uh, dealing with young people. And a lot, as you know, also happens at home. Because, as I say, you're not born this way. At some point, it evolves, and we've got to get at the root problem earlier. What would you say... I know that Charlottesville is still in pain uh, two yeah. years later and still... Uh, you know, working through so much anger. I know you've um, heard some of it even uh, around the book in terms of mistrust of the police, mistrust of the system. What would be the thing, in your view, if you could sort of magic up something to move forward? Is it just, I mean, you're describing uh, so many programs and policies uh, trying to be more inclusive, more big-hearted. Is it just going to be a function of at some point saying... Uh, we need to do the next thing. How do we get past uh, what feels like just a very, very bruised and angry city even two years later? And it's hard for the citizens of Charlottesville because, as I say, the idyllic community, this is so outside of how they think. And and I think that's what really was so shocking to it. But what we have to do, as I say, we have issues in Charlottesville. Uh, on schools and teachers and so forth. Nobody is exempt from this. So I try to take any situation that I've had, any negative situation, and I try to make a positive, you know, into what we can do next. And I think the folks in Charlottesville, just like anywhere else, lean in on these issues, on education and affordable housing. Are people being taken care of? Are uh, some of the folks... Uh, who came to my book event the other day to address the issue that there are still people uh, who were impacted and were hurt and still haven't had medical care. That's the first I'd heard that. Well, that's tragic. Anybody. And that's one thing as a community we can all, not just Charlottesville, all of us in Virginia, but we got to make sure everybody who was physically harmed that day that we're doing everything we possibly can with care. But the other big issue, as I say in the book, and Charlottesville, we've got to start doing something. You know, elections matter. I mean, I don't want to make today political, uh, the biggest thing we can do to heal the nation is to get rid of Donald Trump. Um, because he's... <laughs> he, no, but honestly, he, he... You know, I don't blame him for specific acts, Dahlia, but I do... He's culpable. I mean, think about this. As I mentioned before, you had Obama and Bush and Clinton address the nation in a real crisis. Here you had the president coming out after all of these individuals were killed in El Paso and Dayton. It's the first time in our history that the president went out to give the speech that he was actually a player, in a sense, in the events that actually happened. There was culpability to him. 
And that's never happened before. And it's his rhetoric. And you can talk about Congressman Elijah Cummings, and you can talk about the squad and Charlottesville and all of the stuff that's gone on. He's, he's brought this out in a lot of people. And so you want to talk about what we can do is, one, we get rid of Trump in 2020. Uh, we got to win back the United States Senate because if we don't win the Senate back, there's not going to be any comprehensive uh, common sense gun restrictions or not. You know, as governor, every year I put up common sense, you know, background checks, assault weapon ban, uh, high capacity magazine ban, closing the gun show loophole. Every year. Every year. And every year they died in a Republican subcommittee at 8 or 6.30 in the morning with no recorded vote. I mean, 95% of Americans today are for background check, universal background checks. I mean, how hard is this? So if you really... To me, you know, and they've been dealt a blow, the neo-Nazis, the white supremacists. To me, the real big change in how we can really heal this process is to turn the corner and elect a Democratic president who will lead on healing and bringing our nation back together again, defeating Trump and winning the Senate. Uh, And then many of the things with these guns, we can start dealing with these issues. But more importantly, to have a national leader who we're all one together and talking more about unity than disunity. Can you describe, there's a really, to me, heartbreaking part right toward the end of the book, Governor, where you're talking to Heather Hare, the the, the uh, paralegal who's killed tragically by Fields with his car, and, and you're talking to her mom, and she describes a sense of faltering urgency in America, that, that people don't have that, you know... Uh, if you're not mad, you're not paying attention yeah. sense anymore, that that we've grown a little bit numb. And I, I wonder, you know, I think about this all the time. You know, you start the book with the travel ban. People go out to the airports. You go out to the airports. Yeah. You know, uh, we, everybody is, is riled up. They're fired up. And there seems to be a, a creeping numbness that... You know, it happens again, it happens again, it happens again. We can't be dialed up to 12 all the time, and yet here you have this woman who is, you know, the uh, person who literally gave her life to protest, and her mom is saying we're all falling asleep. And I wonder... What what do you say to people who are just trying to live their lives, do their shopping, raise their kids, and they're just tired of being angry all the time? Yeah, and, and I hate to say it, you can't just think about you're going to go about your everyday life. Those folks in Walmart in El Paso were going about their everyday life. The folks in Dayton were going into Pepper's Bar, going about their everyday life, going and having a beer and having a good time. But look what happened. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, the ordinary life, as long as we have this hatred out there, these divisions, that's what I talk about in the book. We got you. Everybody has to lean in. As long as we have a president today who continues to do what he does to bring out this hatred in people, um, your everyday life is going to be challenged. You don't know next time you go into a grocery store or a bar or wherever you may go that there's someone out there lurking, you know, with an AK-47. And that's sad for our country. But, you know, we can fix it. And Susan Bro was in the book a lot. I talked to her, and, you know, she had all the manuscripts. I mean, I mean, she is a really special woman. She lost her daughter. She talks about the night before she had dinner with her daughter. And she talks about it was interesting that Heather gave her an extra long hug that night. Right. 
And she never, Susan, never in her wildest dreams, never thought for a second. Because at that point, Heather was thinking of not going to the protest. And then the next day with some of her friends, she decided to go. Susan never in her wildest dreams ever thought this would be her last tub. But then, you know, then the tragedy with Heather. And then, you know, the memorial service where Susan Bro got up there and he just did a call out to America. And she has continued. She has a foundation now. She's traveling around the country. Heather Heyer's death can't be in vain. As Susan has said, it has to be a rallying cry. Do something. Get out there. And, you know, she's continuing. We all need to do it. We've got to move forward for the sake of our kids. And when you say do something, I want to go back to the place you start because you talk about voting. And, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. I think about this all the time. We're in a, a, a moment blessed by the Supreme Court for gerrymandering, for, yeah. uh, you know, vote suppression and voter ID. I guess it's a version of the question I open with, and I think I want to ask it a different way, which is people are frustrated. They're angry. They think their vote doesn't count. They think government has failed yeah. them. They would rather just tune out. What's your best pitch, Governor, for yeah. why your vote still matters, your vote still counts, this is still your country, when I think folks feel as though they are utterly disempowered. Well, you can't say your vote doesn't count. You can't. Uh, Look at the 2016 presidential election. Three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Hillary Clinton lost those three states combined by 77,000 votes. People woke up the next day and said, holy cow, how did this happen? It happened because 92 million Americans did not vote. So if 77,800 had showed up in those three states, Hillary would have been president. We would not have had Donald Trump and all the insanity that Trump has brought to the presidency. And look at today, where we are in the issues of race relations. We've spent the last, you know, 45 minutes talking about that. He comes into office. He tries to destroy the Affordable Care Act. He took away the individual mandate. He sowed such confusion and uncertainty in the insurance market that premiums are now going up all over the country. Um, He's destroyed alliances around the world that we've had with our allies, specifically in the European Union. They look at us now like we're crazy. Um, So you can't say your vote doesn't count. And as I say, if 77,000 of you had come out, uh, Donald Trump never would have been president. But I'll give you another case in point. And so... In 2017, we have our House of Delegate elections in Virginia. We have, for control of the chamber, we have one election that is a virtual tie. A tie. And a, the winner is pulled out of a bowl. The name's pulled out of a bowl. Really? So I guess, Dahlia, I, I have no sympathy for that. This still <laughs> is the greatest nation on earth. Men and women are all over the globe wearing the cloth of our country to keep this democracy safe. And, you know, I travel. I've been to 150 countries around the world. I've traveled. I've done business all over the globe. There's nothing like coming back into the United States of America. With all the issues we have, it's the greatest nation on earth. How do we take it to the next level? And I'm a half-glass-full guy, and we can do this. Trump is really trying to take the water out of the glass, but we cannot let him do it. We, you know, every day it's a new channel. We can't let them get us down. This should get us more mobilized. But I am optimistic. In 17 of those elections, Virginia, we had the biggest pickup of Democrats uh, in 140 years. In 2018, we won the House of Representatives. We netted seven new governors. We picked up eight new state chambers. You know, part of that 92 million realized, boy, oh boy, yeah, I made a mistake and I'm going to go out and vote. 
And but we have to, you know, listen, they're making it harder for you to vote, shutting down early vote days and taking name off of ballots. You know, this is something I've fought for my whole life. I started the Voting Rights Institute when I was chairman of the Democratic National Committee back in 01 because the disenfranchisement of African-American voters. You know, I as I said, I restored more felon rights than any governor in American history. Republicans kept suing me. I got sued for contempt of court. Give people the right to vote. This is our democracy. And don't let anyone ever undermine it. That is why I went in the White House and have the Senate and the House of Representatives. Literally, Dahlia, will make such a difference for our nation's future. But it's not going to happen if you don't vote. And, and, and that leads me to, I think, my penultimate question, but one that I, I thought throughout reading this book, I thought what you're really trying to say here, I think, is that words matter. Uh, yeah. And uh, the president's words matter. Those protesters who were chanting, blood and soil, you will not replace us, yeah. um, you know, those were not pro-Civil War monument chants. Those were Nazi chants. That's right. Their words matter. Your words mattered after uh, Donald Trump said there were fine people on both sides. Your, your words mattered. Um, and I think that there's a way in which, you know, we, we're, we're in a funny moment where people are being radicalized on 8chan. This isn't even a national problem. It's a global yeah. problem. Words are incredibly powerful. And in a way, I think that's what your book is trying but, to tell us, yeah. is that the president can't say, I was kidding or I was joking or I was winking at a rally about, you know, assaulting uh, asylum seekers, that words are really profoundly powerful and that we can't lose our confidence in the power of our own speech, right? Not only losing the power of our speech, but how we now, and that's what I try to end the book with, with John Lewis, we need to use our words in a positive way to bring about positive change. And that's how I end the book. My last sentence is do something. But words matter. Clearly has proven this hatred that we've seen in this country. But the folks who are watching this today, you just can't, like, think about it. you got to do something about it. And your words can really change. We're not going to just say we're not going to tolerate this anymore. You know, I'm very optimistic uh, about our future. I'm very optimistic about 2020. You know, we're going to get this country back together again. We're going to end this racial divide. We're going to do the things I talk about we need to do on education and sentencing reform. You know, we've got a lot of issues, but we can fix it. We've got to stay positive and let's do it. And please don't let Donald Trump get you down every single day. You can't. Uh, you got to get out of bed. You got to fight. You got to move on. But we are going to be vigilant on all these haters out there. And we've got to do a better job of monitoring the web. We've got to do a better job of getting these guns off the streets and out of the hands of people who should never be owning weapons. Okay, so this is my very last question. I have only 270 more written down, but I'll end with this. Okay. Um, one of the things that I noticed post-Charlottesville was a real sense of uh, who gets to tell this story, whose story is this? And a real feeling that, at one level, it was the story of this tiny town that felt like it was misunderstood. And, and like you, everywhere I went uh, for a year after, uh, you know, with my Bodo's Bagel t-shirt, people would say, oh my God, you know, was that like Kristallnacht? Like, what was that like? There's a, a, an urgency to both tell the story and to make sense of the story. 
and also uh, not to impose meaning on it. Uh, you know, that, that my meaning isn't your meaning and that what Trump said about it isn't the same thing as what Susan Bro says about it. And, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you tried to sort of navigate the problem of both telling your story. You were the governor. You watched yep. this unfold. You had to, at some point, declare a state of emergency and, and, and triangulate against all these other people whose story it is and, and who are still broken and sad. Yeah. And, and it's hard. I mean, let's be clear. This is a story uh, that I told as the governor is the information that I had in front of me. Others have written books and have done stories. And so for, everybody has their own perspective. Uh, I think people would find it very fascinating. I talk about, you know, running for office, the history, as governor, leading up to Charlottesville, all the preparations and things. But, you know, this was from my perspective uh, of what happened and how we go forward. But as I say, um, you know, I've been involved in politics for a very long time. I've had every job you can have in the Democratic Party. I've been spent more than half my life as a full-time volunteer for the Democratic Party. I love this party. I was just sickened. Uh, about what I saw. I mean, heartbroken, sickened, disgusted, and I just couldn't stay silent. As I say, like you, I travel everywhere, and boy, it really bothered me when people said, you know, those folks in Charlottesville, they were really bad people. I said, no, folks in Charlottesville were really great people. It's the people who came in from those 35. There was just a lot of misperceptions, which I think is important that, that everybody uh, get gets cleared up. As I say, it's a great state, but like every state, we have folks that, you know, uh, don't think the way we do, and they're angry, and they want to take it out. And Trump's telling everybody that, you know, Mexicans are taking your jobs away. I mean, this is not the case, but he has got everybody riled up. Uh, let's rile folks up in a positive way. That's, that's you know, the end of my book. That's what I talk about, what we need to do. But you know what, Dahlia, the important thing is you and I have just had this important discussion. Uh, had I not written the book, we wouldn't be having this discussion today. And I've traveled around the country and Newsweek just put the book on its cover. It's a salient time, specifically because of El Paso and, and Dayton, has come out. Yep. Things haven't changed. So what you don't want is Charlottesville to have just faded uh, into the memory. You know, we had a tragedy in Virginia Beach not too long ago. People yep. don't even remember the 12 people that were killed in Virginia Beach. It's, you know, we can't let all of the lessons and the things that occurred in Charlottesville be forgotten. So... From my perspective, I wanted to memorialize that, but I think it's important that we have the conversation, and you and I are having this conversation today. We're having a conversation on race, and it's important. Racism exists. We've got to defeat it. We've only made some progress. We've got a long, long way to go. That's the perfect place to end this, Governor, and I want to thank you so much for your time and for this book and for helping us remember a day that was two days yeah. that were both the worst of us, but also as somebody who was there, and you, you saw too, a, yeah. a day that was the best of us as well. Yeah, and don't forget, Dahlia, all the people who were there, all the support teams, the EMS personnel, the volunteers, nurses who volunteered that day, the clergy who came out, there were a lot of people there who stepped up to help folks that day, and you can't forget those folks. Yeah, and there were many, many more of them than there were Nazis. That's right. The book is Beyond Charlottesville, Taking a Stand Against White Nationalism by Governor Terry McAuliffe. Thank you, Governor. Thanks, Dahlia.